0: that are utilizing our children's ministry. We run that through uh, the first grade and uh, you can uh, take your children back there now. For those of you that are not utilizing that, we love having children in the service and we have in the back, we have the kids bulletins that uh, they can uh, take and they can use that to try to follow along with the service as well. And so um, we have been going through uh, our confession just slowly over these last several weeks and we just finished uh, chapter two looking at that last week. And uh, and so this morning, we start chapter three, and it relates to God's decree. And I'm just going to read paragraph one of chapter three of the confession. And it says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And so that's, cha- that's paragraph one of chapter three relating to God's decree. Uh, as you can see, that gets into the mystery of divine sovereignty in the, in the human will there. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're jumping back in. We took a break last week from the gospel of Mark uh, as we did our, our children's dedications last week, and we're picking back up with the gospel of Mark this morning. And we're going to look at verses, we're in chapter one, we're going to look at verses 21 on down to uh, verse 39. That's where we're going to camp out at. And what I want to do is I just want to, I want to begin, just I want to read and then pray. I'm going to make a few introductory remarks for us. And then we're going to, um, I've got three kind of points that are going to be the outline of our sermon this morning, and then we will get to our takeaways. And so we're going to start with verse 21. And as I read it, you're going to see there's three different scenes, if you will, um, in the Gospel of Mark this morning, two of which are happening at the Apostle Peter's house. And so starting with verse 21, John Mark, who, who wrote this Gospel, he penned these words under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He says, Then they. Speaking of Christ and the first disciples that we saw uh, that he had called a couple of weeks back, he said, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Second scene. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. So he came and he took her by the hand. And he lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Scene 3, verse 32. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, the door of Peter's house. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before the daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone's looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for God, allowing us to just be reminded of the sweetness of your gospel as we sang just a moment ago. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit this morning, that you would help us to pay attention, Lord, help us to cherish these words that you breathed out. And Lord, we ask that you would, as a result, help us to fall deeper in love with you. And we love you, in Christ's name, amen. Over the, the next few weeks, we're going to uh, see, and, and for those of you that have been kind of journeying with us since we started the Gospel of Mark, you notice kind of a, his immediate kind of action-focused approach uh, to recounting for us the life in the ministry of, of Jesus Christ. And, and these actions, especially over these next several weeks, if we you know haven't been convinced already, uh, we... Uh, we'll even, we will grow even more uh, in our faith and in our certainty uh, regarding the deity of Jesus Christ. And and as I have been reading and, and just going through, again, Mark's accounts of the gospel, and again, his, his style being very immediate, it's just one miracle after the next miracle after the next miracle. As you can even see in just the small section that I just read uh, for you, I can't help but to think of the way that the Apostle John concludes his gospel. And the Apostle John concludes his gospel this way. He says, there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that not even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. And that's just such an incredible way to even end the story uh, recounting the first advent of Jesus, the earthly ministry of jesus and, and his fame spreading throughout the region and, and as we 're reading all of these things that Jesus has done in his incarnation i can 't help but to think, man, this is only just a snapshot of of what he did in his first, uh, in, in his first advent here and so what what we will observe in john 's Uh, John Mark's gospel and and really what we observe in any of the gospels could really be called who Jesus is and some of what he did, right? That's that's kind of what if we were to to summarize the four gospels, who Jesus is and here is some of what he did. But this morning we're going to Look at 18 verses, and like I said a moment ago, they're divided up for us into three different scenes, if you will, and I really struggled with wanting to, and if you've read ahead, you know that uh, the very next uh, paragraph, we encounter Jesus healing a leper, and I wanted to include that this morning, but the more I looked at that particular text, I thought there was more to it that we needed to spend time on, and so we're going to address that next week, but we have three different scenes here. if you will. And two of these scenes, the latter two scenes, they take place at the same location, right? They take place at Peter's house and, and they take place, those last two scenes, on the same day, okay? Those back two scenes do. And, and we've already established, again, for those of you who have kind of been uh, journeying with us since the beginning, we've already established that John Mark's gospel has been considered by many people throughout church history as uh, as being Peter's memoirs if you will and uh, and that is because that much of the uh, the vocabulary that we see in John Mark is is similar to some of the sermons that we see the Apostle Peter preach we also know uh, from uh, Acts chapter 15 that John Mark had abandoned both Paul and Barnabas in their missionary journeys we don't know why he abandoned them but when he tried to rejoin we know that it caused a rift between the Apostle Paul and between Barnabas and they ended up going separate ways ways, Uh, and then we know from the epistles. That uh, somewhere along the way, John Mark was uh, got connected to the Apostle Peter, and uh, and they became very close in their relationship with one another. And and I can't help but to think that the Apostle Peter, who abandoned Christ in his great need, how just appropriate that was in God's uh, just in God's providence that that John Mark, who would have been considered a deserter as well, two deserters coming together, right? Christ restoring Peter and Peter. By the power of the Holy Spirit restoring John Mark in such a way that Mark's gospel. Uh, uh, would have been written and inspired by the Holy Spirit, written, preserved, and become a source document for both Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And so we, uh, so to, to have two scenes here this morning in chapter one uh, that are at Peter's house, I think just further drives home the influence that Peter had on this Particular gospel, and we pick up immediately where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Okay, Christ is called, if you remember, the first disciples, and so he he is called Simon, who who we also know is Peter. Right, he's called Andrew, his brother. And he's called James and he's called John. And we know that Jesus was especially close with Peter and James and John. So it's no, again, it's no coincidence that the establishment of these eyewitness accounts as it relates to the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ would include Peter, James, and John. Right, A, a three-fold cord is not easily broken Ecclesiastes four, twelve. So let's examine just for a few minutes let's examine the first scene which includes verses 21 to 28 because this is the the account the first account that we have in Mark's gospel of Jesus casting out a demon and as we observe this passage we need to note this and if you're taking notes you can jot this down Jesus disrupts a sin infested world and he restores order Okay, Jesus disrupts a sin-infested world and he restores order. All right, so we observe firstly that these initial disciples, they were, according to verse 22, our text tells us that they were astonished at Christ's teaching for he taught them as one having authority, the text says, and not as the scribes. and And we see here this, this consistent inseparable connection between Christ and authority, right? And certainly this is a, this is a theme that we return to quite often as Deer Park Fellowship. Christ has all Authority. And these early disciples perceived that in his teaching. And that word in verse 21 for teaching, it doesn't just mean the content of his preaching, though it means the content of his preaching, but it even means the act of his preaching, right? The method of his preaching. Both the way that Jesus taught and the subject matter, namely the kingdom of God, it gave clear evidence as to his authority. And not to this general sort of generic authority it it is an it's an inherent authority an inherent authority one that's not derived from another human being in fact we know that the father has given Christ all authority because Christ is God right no human being conferred authority on Jesus now, the scribes that are mentioned in our text, they certainly had some authority, these, these scribes here, but their authority was not inherent in their person. They, they derived their authority from the tradition of the elders. We see that in Mark chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. Jesus, on the other hand, has authority because he is, as Mark has been laboring to demonstrate for us, he is the son of of God. Now in this first scene is Christ is teaching amongst the gathering here. There's a man with an unclean spirit. And this man with an unclean spirit, he's being tormented by the very presence of Jesus. And that word unclean in our text, it means ritually or morally unclean. Okay, this man was possessed by a morally unclean, unclean spirit. He was possessed by a demon. Okay, so, so th- th- what, we're, what we're talking about here is a, is a, a demon possession. Right? And this demon, he speaks. This, this man who was possessed, he sort of takes a back seat In his own body, and the voice of a demon, cries out in a very public way. He cries out these words to Jesus. We see in the second part of verse 23 on to 24. He cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And we see a few things just from that public interruption as Jesus is in the synagogue teaching. First, we see that the very presence and the very authority of Jesus are evidenced by the fact that this demon can't even be within his proximity without crying out. His very very presence bothers this demon, right? Jesus being truly God, having inherent authority, came and his, his presence is a disruption to this growing and festering evil and this growing and festering sin. And the presence of Christ causes this, this sharp reaction. And, and we see this even now, right? In, in our very society and even in, in some of our churches, it's the authority of Jesus that is inseparable from his person that makes specific claims it makes specific moral claims over our lives, right? If we all stay generic about who Christ is and, and what that means, that's not going to bother anyone. But when Christ, who has all authority, when, he, when, when we begin to flesh out what it means that he has authority, which means that he has authority over you and he has authority over me, right? you, get, you get reactions from that, don't you? You either get a humble spirit, one Who longs for the things of God and seeks to bring their lives into subjection to the Word of God, you get that, the Lord's softening, or you get these sharp temper tantrums, if you will, to the authority of Jesus Christ. Right? And so it's not, it's not, he doesn't have the sort of authority, he doesn't make room for this. He doesn't have the sort of authority that one could be, if you're thinking about it rightly, one could be apathetic about. Right? When we begin to consider the implications of Christ having all authority in heaven and on earth, and that meaning that he has authority specifically over us, his creatures, right? then you, you can't have a sort of lackadaisical approach to Christ. There's no room for that. Okay, and so, so there, there is this reaction to the presence and the authority of Jesus Second thing that we note here is that phrase and that question that the demon asks What have have we to do with you? We see that in verse 24 there. And that, that vocabulary there means literally, we have nothing in common. We have nothing in common. Christ who has authority is in complete opposition. All right, Christ is pure. He's holy, he's incorruptible, he shares nothing whatsoever in common with demons. He's light and he's the life of man, John 1:14. Right? This devil knows that and he trembles. He trembles, which leads to the third observation here. The, de- the devil testifies here. I know you are the holy one of God. Right? This title that this demon ascribes to Jesus is interesting because the only other place that this title is used is of Samson, the judge, in Judges chapter 16, verse 17. And so this demon recognizes Jesus as God, the great judge. And he was scared that Jesus came to destroy him or to destroy the demons because we see plural language used there, which is evidenced by him saying, did you come to destroy us? One commentator says it this way, themselves tormentors, speaking of these demons, themselves tormentors and destroyers of their victims, they discern in Jesus their own destined tormentor and destroyer, anticipating and dreading what they know and feel. To be awaiting them, conscious too that their power was but permitted and temporary, and perceiving in him perhaps the woman's seed that was to bruise the head and destroy the works of the devil. We know that from God preaching the gospel to Adam and Eve, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 verse 16 perceiving in him perhaps the woman seed that was to bruise the head and destroy the works of the devil they regard his jesus's approach to them on this occasion get this as a signal to let go their grasp of this miserable victim and that's exactly what these demons do it's exactly what they do jesus sternly speaks to this demon or to these demons that are possessing this man he says be quiet and come out of him. That's what he says. Be quiet and come out of him. And most scholars seem to think that, that Christ here is silencing these demons uh, here and later in our text because we see him cast out more demons. Verse 34 that he's silencing them because he did not want to be associated with demons by having demons be the ones that are testifying about him. In fact, his very critics used that. They sought to use his casting out of demons to discredit him. We'll see in a couple of chapters, Mark chapter 3, verse 22, we see these very scribes that are brought up in what we're looking at this morning. It says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. And by that, they mean a satanic spirit. And they're speaking about Jesus. And by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. So, right, their their wheels were already turning as they saw Christ casting out demons. And Christ knows that in that moment because he's omniscient. He knows everything. So, Christ, he commands silence and he tells the demons to come out of the man. And we see how this evil spiritual force is unable to resist the command of Jesus who has all authority. We see verse, that in verses 26 to 28. When the unclean spirit, right, this is immediate, immediately after Christ telling him to be quiet and to come out, it says, when the unclean spirit had convulsed him, the man, and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Christ not only cast out this demon or these demons, but he preserves the man who was possessed. He delivers the man that was possessed. He saves that man. And we should note that even this evil demonic spirit who has and wants nothing whatsoever to do with the kingdom of Jesus couldn't do anything but obey the command of Christ right, that even this demonic evil spirit had to obey the voice of Christ, which is a testimony in and of itself to the absolute authority that Jesus possesses. So we see first that Jesus, he, he disrupts this sin-infested world and he restores order. Or we begin to see the process, if you will, of the restoration of order, even in the first uh, advent of Christ as we long and wait for the day when order is ultimately restored at his second advent. And we see that even the most wicked of creatures can't help but to obey the voice of Jesus when they tremble at his authority and they tremble at his presence. This Jesus that we see, he's not like the scribes. Okay, So that's the first thing. The second thing, if you're taking notes, and we just sang about this a moment ago, but the condescension of Jesus compels gratitude. The condescension of Jesus compels gratitude, and so we we are, we're coming now into the home of of the apostle Peter, and it's there that we'll we'll stay for the rest of the morning for these last two scenes. But in using that word condescension, we just sang that word a moment ago, and again, that's in our. It's the word I just gave you to take notes with. I don't mean by using that word that Jesus is mocking us or he's looking down on us. What I mean when I use that word is that the God of the universe came close to us. He came close to us. He, he humbled himself. He condescended to our lowly, our lowly state. Philippians chapter 2. But look with me at verses 29 to 31 again, and and pay close attention to the the vocabulary of verse 31. As soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon, okay, who's, who's Peter and Andrew, with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. The, the condescension of Jesus and, and it compelling gratitude is what I see, especially in Mark's words in verse 31, right? He came, he took her by the hand, he lifted her up, right? And then we see the, the evacuation of the fever. We see that she gets up and she begins to serve them. But note that, that right, Christ, he, he came, right? In this case, Peter's mother-in-law, she was unable to come to him, right? Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the Book of Acts? He was a physician, and he records this account in his Gospel. and He notes that what Peter's mom-in-law had was a particularly high fever. You see that in Luke chapter four, verse thirty-eight. So it wasn't just your typical fever; this was a uh, this was more dangerous. This was a, a dangerous fever. She was incapacitated, and and isn't isn't that where we all are prior to Christ? coming to us, right? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, right? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, right? We were unable, not just unable, but we were even unwilling to come to Jesus. He instead, he came to us, Now You can look back at the verse 31 in our text because Christ didn't, he didn't just come to Peter's mother-in-law, he touched her, he touched her and he, he lifted her up, right? The closeness here, the intimacy here is striking to me, right? Christ, he could have spoken a word from the other room and she would have been better, right? He had just commanded a demon to come out of a man, right? And we see him heal in other places just by commanding sicknesses to leave, all right, we see him elsewhere raise Lazarus from the dead by calling, calling him out of the, the tomb. But here there's a, there's a point to be made. That Christ really has in his humanity entered into our situations. Now he's entered into our situations. He's close. He's near. He's the lifter of our heads. Psalm chapter 3. Verse three. And and while this was a fever that Christ put away in our text this morning, in his great condescension, Christ has put away forever the disease of our sin. Right? He he put it away as far as the east is from the West. Psalm one oh three, verse twelve. In the first advent of Christ, he became a man to save man from our biggest ailment, right? The darkest thing that plagues us, which is our sin. And as a result, we've been reconciled with God. We've been reconciled with God forever. Right? We were headed for an eternal hell, and God in Christ Jesus acted and forever changed the trajectory of our lives. Right? How could we not respond in gratitude? No matter our situation, how could we ever be a people that harbor resentments or miseries or uh, or bitterness or discontentment in our lives? How could we be anything other than a people who are able to rejoice in all circumstances? All right, Christ's healing of Peter's mother-in-law moved her, compelled her to serve Christ, to respond in gratitude, to respond in service. So how much more should we demonstrate that heart posture knowing all that God in Christ Jesus has accomplished for us? But that's not all we see here. We see that Christ cares even about the things that seem small. Yes, Peter's mother-in-law had a dangerous fever, but a fever compared to him dealing with our sin is such a small thing, isn't it? That's such a small thing, and perhaps we're tempted to think, oh, that just slips off his radar. He's He's got bigger things to attend to. He is God. But Christ is present with us, even in the other stuff. He cares about the other stuff, what we perhaps would call the smaller stuff. Christ cares about it. So Christian, Christ is present with you. He's present with you when you're sick. Children, Christ is present with you when you're feeling sad or lonely or you're feeling upset. Seniors, Christ is near you. He's with you as you age you struggle to get around or you feel like you go unnoticed. Parents, Christ is with you when it seems like your parenting is producing zero fruit. College students, Christ is with you when you're up late studying or you're feeling homesick or you feel overwhelmed with life's decisions. Husbands and wives, Christ is with you and he's near you as you struggle to honor him in your marriage. Christ is with you as You experience life's tumbles and you grieve loss and you grieve unmet expectations. Christ's with you. He's with you in your pain. He's with you in your physical ailments that seem to linger and make you long for a new and and glorified body. Christ, he cared and he entered into the suffering of a lady with a high fever. And he's present with you. He's spiritually present with you. So one of his greatest gifts to you is the paraclete, is the Holy Spirit, is the comforter who lives inside of all those who are in Christ. You become the very temple of the Holy Spirit. He's near you. He's he's solved our biggest problem, which was that of sin, but he cares even about the smallest problems, too. Look at the birds of the air for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns yet your heavenly Father feeds them are you not of more value than they Matthew 6:27 So allow the condescension of Jesus and his nearness his intimacy to produce in you abiding gratitude abiding joy and then third Communion with God sustains us, therefore we must prioritize it. Communion with God sustains us, therefore we must prioritize it. Look at our final scene with me, still at Peter's house. At evening, verse 32, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him, right? We see that again. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out, and he departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, "'Everyone is looking for you,' but he said to them, "'Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth.'" And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Right, some commentators called this section, these last two scenes, a day in the life of Jesus. Right, a little, little, little snapshot here. And, and this, you know, if this is typical, this is quite a, uh, a full day right? This is, a, this is a long day. There's loads of miracles. There's the exercising of demons. There's, there's lots of people from the town that are, are gathering at the very door of the Apostle Peter so that they can make their way to Christ. And Christ is seen here, especially in all, all of the section we've looked at this morning, but, but Christ is seen here as chasing off the darkness, and i and i love that he he's chasing off the bad he's chasing off the the curse now in september is is now when uh um, all the Halloween decorations go up i don 't know if you notice things like that get earlier and earlier, but september is uh, is now when ho- Halloween decorations go up and, and Any time I go to lowe 's my kids ask me to take them by all of the uh, decorations that that you would see in lowe 's and When I do, I, I try to use it as a, a bit of an opportunity to uh, a teaching opportunity because I annoyingly do that and um, uh, but in in and one of the reasons i do that is because in our, our society most of the halloween decorations um when, or when the moment the halloween de- decorations come down on november 1st what goes up on november 1st christmas you've seen it too right Right? Not, not Thanksgiving decorations. We skip that all together for some reason. But Christmas decorations go up. And uh, I'm one of those people that uh, could celebrate Christmas year-round. I love Christmas. and um, But I love how the Halloween decorations in Lowe's, I love how those change immediately on November 1st. And they go from Halloween scary decorations to Christmas uh, decorations. And I try to remind my boys um, by helping them to notice the changes in the decorations that it's it 's Christ who chases away all the scary stuff right it 's Christ that that chases off all the scary stuff and we and we certainly see that in our text this morning don 't we The very presence of Jesus disrupting a sin infested world and and one day at the return of Christ, all the, the, the scary stuff is going to become untrue, right? It's like the most, it's the, it's the most wonderful uh, of, of stories ever, ever composed. And it's a, it's a true story that when Christ comes back, all the bad stuff is no longer true because his very presence eradicates, it chases off the curse, right? It chases it off as as far as it's found, right? The blessings of Christ go, they extend as far as the curse is found. And it's definitively done away with when Jesus returns. But what I love about what we've been looking at this morning, and we'll continue to see this, is is we see this characteristic of Jesus's daily ministry in the Gospels as well, A, a sort of microcosm, a sort of foretaste of how his kingdom works, right? Uh, But what I want us to notice is something that often gets lost in the reading of all of this incredibly miraculous stuff going on. And and it's, it's in verse 35, right? Because it's the source, if you will, of all the bad stuff becoming untrue, all the darkness being chased off. We see it here. In the morning, verse 35, having... Risen a long while before daylight, he, speaking of Christ, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Now think about this for a moment. If Jesus, who was perfect, Jesus who was perfect, had all authority, Jesus who's truly man and he's truly God, if he needed solitude, needed to commune with God through prayer, how much more do we need it as sinful creatures? How much more do we need to commune with God? All right? Christ, he, he, he went in the, in the busyness of his ministry, in the busyness of his life, he went to a solitary place so that he could prioritize time with the Father. All right? And while we're all in different stages of life, and while this may all look different for us, we must, as Christians, prioritize time with the Lord. We have to prioritize time with the Lord. Notice that even that Christ, he did this on a Sunday. He did this on the first day of the week. I don't think it's a coincidence that Christ did this then, that we see Christ communing with God on the first day of the week. I think it prophetically points us toward the Lord's day, toward the Christian Sabbath, our regular rhythm of rest, right? God has designed our weeks in such a way that we labor for six days of the week and we spiritually rest On Sundays, and and God created the Sabbath even before the fall of man. He created the Sabbath when man was perfect. It wasn't designed as a result of the fall. The Sabbath is how God's kingdom functions. It's how God's kingdom works. Now, the day changed from Saturday to Sunday because of the, the resurrection of Jesus, but the need to spiritually rest through worship and to physically rest from your labors... It remains a good abiding commandment. So why would we, why would we neglect that? We see here Christ communing with God on the first day of the week. And we see after the resurrection of Christ, a pattern established by the early church and continued down through the centuries, this regular rhythm of God's saints gathering to remember the rest that Christ acquired for them. So we must first gather regularly. But we also see in Christ an example of familiarity with God. Christ regularly communed with the Father in solitary places. He was, so far as it depended on him, alone with God. And while many of us in this room this morning, we don't have the ability, maybe you're, you're a mom and you've got kids just with you no matter where you go, Right? And so maybe you don't have this opportunity to have these long periods of solitude, but we do have the opportunity, each one of us, to be able to redeem the time that the Lord gives us to commune with Him according to our particular circumstances in life. All right? We must speak to Him regularly through prayer. And it isn't just that we must speak, but rather that we, we have the opportunity to speak. We're allowed to speak. And He hears us. God hears us and and we can hear from him as we read his word and as the Holy Spirit of God applies his word to our hearts, we can trust that we are in fact hearing from God and what a privilege that is, right? That we can commune with the God of the cosmos, Father, Son, and Spirit, that he's made that possible and it's our very sustenance in a dark world. As we seek and long for the day that the blessings completely eradicate the curse from this world. And the prophet Jeremiah understood this even on his darkest days. If you know anything about the, the judgment of Jerusalem that we, and the, the grief and the trauma and the depression and all, all just the, the stuff that Jeremiah dealt with, he clung to Christ. He clung to his God as his portion. He says so in verse 24, the Lord is right in the midst of all this suffering maybe when it seems like the suffering's never going to end the troubles are never going to l- go away right even in the thick of that jeremiah says the lord's my portion says my soul therefore i hope in him therefore i hope in him right? and certainly we can avail ourselves of that very thing we can put ourselves into a position in which we feast spiritually on the Lord. We speak to Him through prayer. We hear from Him by reading His Word and the Spirit of God testifying to us about the contents of the Word. And we'll increase in our appetites for God as we do that. And we'll be able to say, along with Jeremiah, no matter what our circumstance is in life, the Lord truly is my portion. So we as Christians we want to take advantage of something so wonderful. So what should we do? How should we think in light of all this? And I gave you a few takeaways that are different than the kind of the outline we followed this morning, just to keep you on your toes. The first is this: we need to remember that our commitments to Christ are by nature disruptive in a rebellious society. He's not a neutral person. He's Lord, and he has all authority. Okay, so that's one of the first things we need to do is we need to remember. The second thing is we should be the most thankful, gracious, and joyful people because Christ came and he lifted us up out of our sins and our misery. Third, we must regularly commune with God. Oh, sorry, I'm missing one in my, my note here. Third, we must be comforted by the nearness of Christ in every circumstance that we face. And then fourth, we must regularly commune with God and see it as our very delight to do so. And just a few practical things on that. We do this weekly on Sundays together. I can't overemphasize enough the, the uh, primacy of the Lord's Day. Uh, and then we should be doing this regularly throughout the week too as we seek God through His Word and as we seek God In prayer as well. And so, with that said, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. God, we thank you again for this time in your word. And I pray, God, that you would use it to comfort us, to strengthen us, Lord. And we ask that you are glorified by us having spent time together this morning. And so, knit us together as a church family around our common confession. And we love you and we give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the time of our service where we come.